today we commemorate Good Friday. For our sake, our Redeemer suffered death and was buried and rose again. With heartfelt love, let us adore him and pray in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord, have mercy on us. Christ, our teacher, for our sake, you were obedient even to accepting death. Teach us to obey the Father's will in all things. Christ, our life, by your death on the cross, you destroyed the power of evil and death. May we die with you to rise with you in glory. Christ, our King, you became an outcast among us, a worm and no man. Teach us the humility by which you saved the world. Christ, our salvation, you gave yourself up to death out of love for us. Help us to show your love to one another. Christ our Savior, on the cross, you embraced all time with your outstretched arms. Unite God's scattered children in your kingdom of salvation. Father, look with love upon your people, the love which our Lord Jesus Christ showed us when he delivered himself to evil men and suffered the agony of the cross. For he lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Good morning and welcome to this Good Friday edition of the Sunrise Morning Show. I'm Anna Mitchell, and alongside Matt Swain, we'll be spending the next hour together reflecting in a number of different ways on topics related to the passion, to the crucifixion and death of our Lord Jesus Christ. We hope you can stick around for the full hour ahead. We'll get started right now at two minutes past the hour. Liz Lev is an art historian, guide to Rome, and co-author with George Weigel of Roman Pilgrimage, The Station Churches. Liz, good morning. Good morning. The Station Church for Good Friday is Santa Croce in Jerusalemme in Rome, which houses relics of the Passion. Now, St. Helena is the one who brought the true cross to Rome. Why was she looking for it? St. Helena, albeit she was the mother of the Roman emperor, so you're dealing with one of the most powerful women in the world when the empire is consolidated. You'd be thinking she's on top of the world. Why would she go looking for some little relic? But just as Christianity got a toehold because Helena's son Constantine legalized Christianity, all of a sudden these doubts and these beliefs or these stories began to circulate that first and foremost Jesus' passion was merely a metaphor. It hadn't really happened. So on one level, her search was a question of finding the proof so this story would not pass into myth and legend, but be the real event of Christ's redemptive sacrifice. But there was a second, more personal reason. And here's Helena, who's worked so hard to get her son to be sympathetic to Christians, to legalize Christianity, and what does he do? In order to consolidate his power, Constantine killed not only his wife, but his stepson. And so she went also as one of these very early pilgrims to make the dangerous journey to pray at the tomb of Christ. Now, how did she figure out that it was actually the true cross? Now, the fun part of this is you have to realize that this is the story of a piece of wood, an instrument through which Christ redeemed mankind, right? Right. So the story is made into something much, much more than just, so she went to the Holy Land, so she found this cross, so she... (laughs) No, it's the legend. Just like we have so many beautiful paintings of the story of the exaltation of the cross, where the artists imagine these scenes in this drama... 
so does the story create a beautiful vision of a, of, a, of a piece of wood that began in the Garden of Eden, underwent adventure, 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 and adventure. It's a, it's a saga, it's like an epic movie over this cross, almost personified in its adventures. And so ultimately, Helena gets to Jerusalem, and the first thing she finds is that on the tomb of Christ, the site of the, the tomb of the place of the Holy Sepulchre, the Romans have built a temple to the goddess Venus. And so it, it's a fascinating juxtaposition, because it's like the Romans intuit that this is a question of love, but they put their temple to their goddess of erotic love, their, their sort of confused sexual love, and they put it on top of the site where we have this ultimate example of Christian love. And so she sees already this aberration, and so she gets rid of the temple. Then she goes after the cross. And she finally, after many more adventures, finds the cross buried, hidden away, so that Jesus' story would always be a question of fiction. But when she dug into the ground, there were not one, but three crosses. So now you find yourself with the problem of, well, which there's always going to be, how do you know which is which? Helena, the undaunted dowager empress, she stopped a funerary procession that was leaving the city and asked if she could borrow the corpse for a moment. (laughs) And so Helena put the body on cross number one, nothing happened. She put it on cross number two. Nothing happened. She put it on cross number three. The guy got up and walked away. So just wonderful, wonderful, wonderful story of that power of the cross. Do you have a favorite depiction of this in art? I was actually thinking about this, and, and I have to say, um, the correct answer as an art historian is Piero della Francesca's story of the exaltation, the legend of the cross, which is painted from 1445 to 1467 in the Church of Arezzo. It is a groundbreaking, magnificent piece of art. It's beautiful, but in a, to me, in a certain sense, it's so perfectly executed that it's a tad clinical. So the one I really, truly love is the one that's in the Church of Santa Croce in Florence, and it's a messy painting by, by, by Angelo Gaudi. It's from the 1340s. He doesn't have one-point linear perspective. He can't make voluminous forms, but he crowds all these figures in. Everything is a crowd scene. So it's almost like today, if an adventure like this is happening, just like the Pope's visit to the United States, you have a horde of journalists and lookers-on and bystanders following every step of the way. Angelo Gotti's painting captures that excitement of every single moment that that cross has appeared. There's always this kind of crowd and, and, and people pressing in on it. Liz, where is the true cross today? Well, uh, according to the 4th century, so in the 4th century, um, after the death of Helena, the cross was noted uh, by St. John Chrysostom, if I'm not mistaken, as having been found and fragmented. And so it was already broken up and sent to several different places around the world. But a conspicuous piece of the cross ended up in the home where the Dowager Empress had lived, and she brought some back with her. That church is the Church of Santa Croce, or the Holy Cross in Rome. So there are pieces of the True Cross almost immediately sent all over the world, but there is one of the more important pieces is in the Church of Santa Croce, and then of that piece, another piece was sent to St. Peter's Basilica. So tell us what the Church of the Holy Cross in Rome looks like as it stands today. 
Well, as it stands today, you walk up to a facade that's a little bit surprising, especially since uh, Holy Cross in Jerusalem is the uh, church for the station church for Good Friday. So this solemn, solemn, solemn day, and you walk up to this giant church with this curving, very exuberant Baroque facade. As a matter of fact, it was so exuberant that the Pope who commissioned it, Benedict the Fourteenth, asked if there were if the man was thought he was designing a theater facade because it doesn't give away the solemnity of the building. But once you penetrate past all that Baroque volute, you walk into a space which is a former uh, imperial basilica, which means these massive granite columns for this tremendously important space, which is the actual Basilica of Holy Cross. What happens on Good Friday at the Basilica of the Holy Cross in Rome? Well, actually, as you probably, as I'm sure you all know, the role of the uh, Basilica of Holy Cross as the station church for that day has been eclipsed somewhat by the excitement of the fact that the Pope does the Stations of the Cross in the Colosseum, but that is the site where pilgrims have gone for centuries and centuries and centuries to venerate the group of relics connected to Christ's Passion. So those of us who are fortunate enough to be in Rome but not fortunate enough to be in Jerusalem can go and and feel like we're at the foot of the cross. You mentioned a group of relics of the Passion. So in addition to the True Cross, what are the other relics that we would see at this church? Well, I would say the fascinating thing about it is first you walk into this you know, big, huge, important-looking basilica with these tall granite columns, beautiful apse painting by Antoniazzo Romano in the back, and then people tend to go downstairs into the old little crypt and cubiculum, which were the actual rooms of St. Helena, and they're in that kind of very dazzling but very underground spaces where she originally kept the relics. But now... The change in the church has been to construct a special relic chapel so pilgrims go into the, down the nave, they go left, and they start climbing stairs. And the amazing thing about climbing these stairs is that you begin to realize that you are climbing the stairs with Christ. And as you look at the wall, there are the stations of the cross, and every place there's a landing, there's a place where Christ falls. So you follow that journey, climbing up that hill. Finally, you enter into a room that is completely decorated with marble, so the temperature of the room drops as if you're walking into a tomb. The temperature, you get colder when you step into that space. And then finally, you go to the very end of that chapel, and there in this glass case, the center relic is the relic of the cross, kept in a cross-shaped reliquary. But surrounding it are a number of other relics, including thorns from the crown of thorns. There are fragments of stone from the column to which Christ was tied for the flagellation. There is a nail that pierced Christ's hands or feet. The headboard, one of the most astonishing relics, is a little piece of wood with Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, written in three languages. On the left-hand side, you have the cross board of the uh, cross of Dismas, the good thief who repented on the cross. And amidst all of that, amazingly enough, amidst all of that, placed right in the middle of those relics is that finger of St. Thomas, that finger that doubted. So it's, it's one of these amazing moments where on one hand you're face-to-face with these objects of the crucifixion, of the Lord's passion, and at that same time there's that recognition of our own humanity, our humanity like Thomas, and that doubt that we always have with us. Liz, what is it like to pray the Stations of the Cross as you walk toward the actual cross? It's an, I think it's, it's an experience, it's so 
sobering. Um, but it's very, it, it, the interesting contrast is if you think about doing the Stations of the Cross, praying the Stations of the Cross in Jerusalem, where everything is chaotic and noisy, and you're stepping into a little corner where busyness is happening, and that was really much more like what Christ experienced on his way out to the cross. He was passing through in the middle of a busy day. But for us in Rome, in this space, we have the opportunity to step with Christ in, in our hearts, in our souls, in silence, in meditation. And so as we climb those steps and then we stop and we pause and we realize the incredible struggle that Jesus had on his way to the site of crucifixion to get to the point where he would actually complete the work of saving mankind. It's, it's really, it's sobering, it's moving, it's, it's almost indescribable. We've been talking to Liz Lev, the art historian and guide to Rome and co-author of Roman Pilgrimage, The Station Churches. Liz, thank you so much. We'll look forward to having you back soon. Thank you. We'll hit a break here. You're listening to a special Good Friday edition of the Sunrise Morning Show. Support is from Sony Pictures. This Easter holiday, see the movie based on the inspiring true story. Figured it out. I'm going to be a priest. For Halloween. A father stew. No one wants to hear the gospel from the mouth of a gangster. Academy Award nominee Mark Wahlberg. Maybe that's exactly what they need. And Academy Award winner Mel Gibson. Men don't lose when he gets knocked down, but when he won't get up. God ain't giving up on you. Don't you dare go giving up on yourself. When the man comes around. Father Stu, exclusively in movie theaters April 13th. Rated R, under 17, not admitted without parent. Healthcare that works better and costs less? Seems like an oxymoron, right? Solidarity HealthShare members say that faith-based health sharing is a much better fit than insurance, all while costing less. Prices start at $384 a month for families. To find out how much you can save, 855-954-5688. That's 855-954-5688. Solidarity HealthShare supports the Sunrise Morning Show. Central Fabricators is proud to support the Sunrise Morning Show and encourages other Catholic business owners to do the same. Central Fabricators knows that the Sunrise Morning Show is where you'll get the news from the Catholic perspective while keeping you up to date on what's happening in the Vatican as well. It's also a great way to keep in touch with the Catholic faith throughout the week. Central Fabricators, based in Cincinnati, Ohio, has been in business for more than 70 years. On the web at centralfabricators.com. That's centralfabricators.com. Support is from Sony Pictures. This Easter holiday, see the movie based on the inspiring true story. Figured it out. I'm going to be a priest. For Halloween. A father stew. No one wants to hear the gospel from the mouth of a gangster. Academy Award nominee Mark Wahlberg. Maybe that's exactly what they need. And Academy Award winner Mel Gibson. Men don't lose when he gets knocked down, but when he won't get up. God ain't giving up on you. Don't you dare go giving up on yourself. When the man comes around. Father Stew, exclusively in movie theaters April 13. Rated R, under 17, not admitted without parent. The Sunrise Morning Show continues on this Good Friday. I'm Matt Swaim, joined now by Joe Heschmeyer. He runs the blog Shameless Popery, and uh, he is also a member of the School of Faith. And we've been looking at these characters of the Passion, characters from Holy Week. Joe, do you think Judas is one of those that you have to talk about him, but you kind of don't want to? Yeah, I think he often, we just think of him as a villain and try not to think about him too much. 
Well, I think the reason that I don't like thinking about him too much is because he's a follower of Jesus, one of Jesus' inner circle who falls away. Now, I never grew up once saved, always saved. I always grew up believing you could lose your salvation. But to watch somebody do it on the biggest stage imaginable, man, it makes you reflect on your own commitment to Christ. It does. And I think it makes us realize that you can't just expect if only people had better catechesis, if only they had a better preacher— then everyone would be saved, then everyone would come to Christ, and everyone would, you know, live right. Like, this is someone who learned from Jesus Christ in the flesh for three years and still went the direction that he did. So, I mean, by all means, like, I'd love to see better catechesis, better evangelization, better homilies, etc. But sometimes we make an idol out of those things and think that's all that's missing and, and forget the whole role of the human will. Yeah, Judah saw all the same miracles as Peter, James, and John, but... If you could, really, what led to his downfall? Yeah, it's a fascinating kind of combination of things. He seems to be, well, for one, he's motivated by greed. And John tells us that in his Gospel. There's also this sense in which I think there are people who are scandalized by Christ, and so he may on some level think that he's doing the right thing. It's, that part isn't as clear. We know that he betrays him for money, and, and it's presented, obviously, in a very unflattering light in the New Testament. But he seems to have probably been justifying it to himself that Christ is a lawbreaker or that he's saying things that he shouldn't be saying as a pious Jew. And he's doing things that are lavish <laughs> and uh, impractical. It strikes me as kind of interesting that it's not Matthew that's put in charge of the money bags because Matthew was a former tax collector, and I feel like maybe that was too much of a temptation to put Matthew in charge of that stuff. Judas, you have to wonder if maybe he was put in charge of the money bags because he was so pragmatic and practical. I mean, he's the guy who, when Mary of Bethany is washing Jesus' feet with expensive perfume, is thinking, this is not cost-effective, you know? Yeah, he has that very famous line about how, should she be doing this, couldn't we give this money to the poor? And it's the same line you hear from people anytime you want to do something lavish for God. If you want to build a beautiful cathedral— you're going to hear that. I mean, people are going to be like, oh, we shouldn't spend that money on that. We can give it to the poor. But it's a very selective sort of, I don't even want to call it real charity, but a sort of selective sort of pity for the poor. Because if you want to buy, like, something nice and luxurious for yourself, you don't hear the same sort of outcry. If you spend $40,000 on a Tesla, people aren't saying the same things that they say if you, you know, spend $40,000 to, like, build a beautiful altar backdrop or whatever else it may be. It's only in the latter case you really hear all of the uh, the hand-wringing over, over giving money to the poor. But this is exactly what Judas's objection is. When Mary spends like an entire liter of expensive nard to just anoint Christ, Judas presents himself as being scandalized. And we're told by the evangelists that it's because he's spending the money himself, that he's been stealing money. So there are a lot of questions that have been asked about Judas and kind of the the last moments of Judas after he turns Jesus over, betrays him with a kiss in the garden, and then goes out and regrets everything and hangs himself. What do you think we can take away from those moments? I mean, the, the most common reflection we have is that Peter denied Christ but didn't despair and came back. Judas despaired and hung himself. But what do you think we can take away from those final moments of Judas that were filled with regret? Yeah, that regret just isn't enough. Shame isn't enough. I know that's a, kind of a striking thing to say, but it shows that there is something very human about Judas. You know, Aquinas says, lack of shame occurs in the best and in the worst men, 
through different causes. So in the best men, because they have nothing to be ashamed of. And the worst men, because they're proud of the wicked deeds that they do. And there's still something going on in Judas, even after he betrays Christ, where he is ashamed. And so in Matthew 27, in verses 3 to 4, it says, When Judas, his betrayer, saw that he, Jesus, was condemned, he repented and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned and betrayed innocent blood. And they said, What is that to us? See to it yourself. And it's this cruel, kind of cold-hearted response the chief priests and elders have that seems to seal his fate. Judas doesn't know where to turn, but there's one to whom he should obviously be turning, which is Jesus himself. Jesus shows him mercy throughout this whole episode, even in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he says, friend, why are you here? He refers to his friend even in the hour when he's betraying him. And so this mercy is just held out and held out and held out to Judas. And so even when he realizes he's done wrong, he doesn't have the humility or the insight to know, oh, you know, this, this Jesus who has shown me mercy at every turn will continue to show me mercy. He tries to remedy the situation himself by bringing the, the 30 pieces of silver back. But the whole point is that 30 pieces of silver, that's the price of a slave. He sold Christ for too little. Uh, Christ is worth infinitely more than that. And so to think that he can make reparation by just giving back 30 pieces of silver still grossly underestimates what Jesus is worth. There's a lot to reflect on in the story of Judas. We've been looking at the characters of Holy Week with Joe Heschmeyer. We've got his blog, Shameless Popery, linked at sunrisemorningshow.com. Joe, thanks so much. We'll talk to you again soon. Great. My pleasure. You're listening to a special Good Friday edition of the Sunrise Morning Show. It's 21 past the hour. This is Conversations with Consequences, where we delve deeper into issues affecting our church, our country, and our core, the family. As Catholics, we need to be informed, aware, and able to talk through some of the tough topics that we're facing in our culture and in our world. Conversations with Consequences gives us the tools to do so. It's not enough to pray. We have to be a light for the world. Conversations with Consequences, tomorrow at 5 p.m. Eastern on EWTN Radio. The past two years have been a crazy roller coaster ride, but you have the power to make 2022 the year your business gets back on track by underwriting the Sunrise Morning Show. Each weekday morning, you reach millions of engaged Catholic listeners across the U.S. and around the globe who want to support Catholic businesses and organizations. Start the new year by getting national exposure for your business, ministry, or nonprofit on the Sunrise Morning Show. To find out more, email me, Leah, at sacredheartradio.com. This is Father Rob Jack, and you're listening to Sacred Heart Catholic Radio. On this Good Friday, we follow the Lord to Calvary. We watch as he bravely struggles to carry his cross through the streets, though he is weighed down by our sins. We hear those who mock him, and all of a sudden we recognize our own voice as the ones who have mocked the Lord through our sins. We join Mary, his sorrowful mother, under the shadow of the cross. We finally see the great love God has for us, Jesus stretched out his hands and his feet to receive the nails. His head is covered with a crown of thorns. All of this he has done for love. All of this he has done for us. May we stand under the cross today as a sorrowful people, a repentant people, and ultimately as a grateful people. For Jesus Christ has died for our sins, that we may be freed from death and raised to eternal life. 
You're listening to the Sunrise Morning Show on this Good Friday, and Monsignor Charles Pope is joining us now. You can find his blog over at blog.adw.org. Monsignor Pope, good morning. Good morning. We're discussing today the teachings of St. Thomas Aquinas on some of the whys of Christ's passion. So first, Monsignor Pope, let's talk a little bit about why Christ died where he did, of course, in the city of Jerusalem. So, Monsignor Pope, when it comes to Christ offering himself as a sacrifice, why was Jerusalem the appropriate place for that to take place? Well, it was the place where everyone went to offer sacrifice at that time. You know, in the very early days of Israel, sacrifice was offered in different shrines and different places. But here, by the time the covenant was fully up and running and everything was set up in Jerusalem, there was only one place to go to offer sacrifice. There was only one temple. And in order to sacrifice, you, you went to Jerusalem. So that's where the lambs were killed. That's, and that's where Jesus, our Lamb of God, uh, is, is killed for us. Also, what is the, uh, the significance of the place called Golgotha? There was a long tradition that Adam was buried there in that area. In fact, today, if you go to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, uh, the high part of the church which covers the old hill of Golgotha, that's where Christ is crucified. You can touch the stone, but you go down the steps, and at the bottom there is this uh, tomb of Adam. There's kind of an open fissure in the rock, and an old tradition says through that fissure some drops of Christ's blood dropped there onto the skeleton of Adam, and he got up and danced a jig. (laughs) But unfortunately, St. Thomas really doesn't have much confidence in this tradition, and cites a book that was written in his time that says Adam probably wasn't buried there. Uh, <laughs> but he says it's also called Golgotha because the heads of beheaded people were thrown there. Therefore, Christ mm-hmm. elevates martyrdom from the simple condemnation to the glory of martyrdom. So mm-hmm. he has a different reason, but I think both are good for us. Now, something else that Thomas Aquinas ponders is he asks the question, did Jesus endure every suffering in his passion on Good Friday? Mm-hmm. Yeah. He, first of all, distinguishes, he says, he's not saying literally every species of suffering, but in a very general way, every aspect, every category of suffering is certainly suffered by our Lord. There were mental anguishes, there were physical anguishes, there was a betrayal of both friends and enemies, countrymen and foreigners. Every aspect of his body was harmed, from his head to his foot. So in all these ways, he suffered very, very comprehensively. And so it's fair to say that Jesus understands our suffering. Yes, he does. And I think that, again, without being so specific, like, for example, did he suffer mental illness? No, but he certainly suffered mental anguish. You know, did he suffer uh, losing a limb? No, he did not, but he certainly lost the use of his limbs. And so you see the idea. He suffered in every kind of suffering in a generic or general way rather than specific. Thomas says, in his head, he suffered from the crown of piercing thorns and his hands and feet from the fastening of the nails on his face, from the blows and spittle, and from the lashes over his entire body. Moreover, in touch by being scourged and nailed, in taste by being given vinegar and gall to drink, in smell by being fastened to the gibbet in a place reeking with the stench of corpses, which is called Calvary, in hearing by being tormented with the cries of blasphemers and scorners, in sight by beholding the tears of his mother, and of the disciple whom he loved. Those are some powerful words from St. Thomas. Yeah, it's beautiful and litany-like, and it certainly a summons to prayer. It's just quite a meditation, the way you wrote it. It's amazing. Absolutely. We've been talking to Monsignor Charles Pope. Thank you so much, and have a blessed rest of your Holy Week. You too. Thank you. We'll hit a break here. You're listening to a special Good Friday edition of the Sunrise Morning Show. Support is from Sony Pictures. This Easter holiday, see the movie based on the inspiring true story. Figured it out. I'm going to be a priest. 
for Halloween. A father's stew. No one wants to hear the gospel from the mouth of a gangster. Academy Award nominee Mark Wahlberg. Maybe that's exactly what they need. And Academy Award winner Mel Gibson. Men don't lose when he gets knocked down, but when he won't get up. God ain't giving up on you. Don't you dare go giving up on yourself. When the man comes around. Father Stu, exclusively in movie theaters April 13th. Rated R, under 17, not admitted without parent. Experience the incredible story of a woman who Time Magazine named the most influential Catholic woman in the United States. Rita Rizzo, the future Mother Angelica, grew up in a working-class neighborhood in Canton, Ohio during the Great Depression. Rita's father abandoned the family before she was five years old. Her early years of trial were compounded by a debilitating illness until she was healed by Jesus through a woman named Rhoda Wise. That healing set her life on a course that would ultimately change the world. Learn the amazing story of Rita Rizzo at the Mother Angelica Museum in her hometown of Canton, Ohio. Go to www.motherangelicamuseum.com. Be inspired. Plan your visit now at motherangelicamuseum.com. St. Augustine gives us tremendous insight as to why we should pray. He says this, Why God should ask us to pray when He knows what we need even before we ask Him may perplex us if we do not realize that our Lord and God does not want to know what we want, for as God, He cannot fail to already know it. But rather, He wants us to exercise our desire through our prayers so that we may be able to receive what He is preparing to give us. It's a special Good Friday edition of the Sunrise Morning Show. I'm Anna Mitchell, and we're joined now by Sarah Chris Meyer, who is online at comeintotheword.com. She's author of Created Me a Clean Heart, 10 Minutes a Day in the Penitential Psalms. Good morning, Sarah. Good morning, Anna. How are you today? I am doing fine, thank you, and looking forward to reflecting with you on the last of the seven penitential psalms, Psalm 143. Can you give us an overview? So Psalm 143 is a psalm of David, and in it we hear David pleading with God really from a place of abandonment. So it's this really low point, and whatever it is he's going through, he feels like he's near death. And so from that place of horror, you know, David turns to the Lord, and he says in verses 5 and 6, I remember the days of old. I meditate on all that you have done. I muse on what your hands have wrought. I stretch out my hands to you. My soul thirsts for you like a parched land. And this is a, it's a real turning point that focuses him on the one who's able to deliver him. And I love those verbs, you know, I remember, I meditate, I muse, I stretch out my soul thirsts. From this place of really open abandonment to God, David places his trust in him. He places it there deliberately. You know, he lifts his soul to the Lord, entrusting himself to God's mercy. And so then the psalm ends with the assurance that God will care for him and destroy his enemies. You know, because David belongs to God, he can trust in his love to redeem him. Now that's sort of the historical context, if you will, but we're, of course, Mm -hmm. talking about this psalm on Good Friday. So can you reflect on it from the foot of the cross? 
Yeah, and we can almost pray it as though we can hear Jesus in it. You know, on Good Friday today, we're walking with Jesus through that dark day of His Passion. And Jesus asks us today, just the same way He asked the disciples in the garden, to sit here while I pray, to remain here and watch. And this psalm can help form our prayer as we do this. So there are a few things you might listen for to make the connection. David feels abandoned by God on the verge of death. Of course, Jesus feels that same way on the cross. He sits in darkness, crushed to the ground, and we can think of Jesus' agony in the garden. He stretches out his hands like Jesus' arms are stretched out on the cross, and his soul thirsts like a parched land, like Jesus thirsts. So we see, you know, all of David's attention is on God, even though this sorrow and pain is consuming him. And it it kind of makes me think of Psalm 22, which Jesus was certainly thinking about when he was on the cross, because he spoke the first words of it, you know, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And both of those psalms look to what God has done in the past in order to find strength to hope for the future. So we can read Psalm 143 today and join Jesus in his passion. And as we meditate on this psalm, and of course on our Lord's passion today, what questions would you suggest that we ask ourselves? Well, I I love that pattern that David set in verses 5 and 6. It's not exactly questions, but we too can remember that Jesus took our sins and suffering and pain on himself. We can meditate on what that meant for him. You know, when the wave of death rolled in, he bowed his head, dove under it. You know, we can muse on the result that Jesus allowed it to crush him, but rose triumphant. And then we can choose to stretch out our arms to God and thirst for him as his son thirsted on the cross. And so, Sarah, will you pray Psalm 143 with us now? I would love to do that. You close your eyes, put yourself in God's presence, and we pray, listen to me, O God, and show me mercy, for I am a sinner before you. Psalm 143, a Psalm of David. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my supplications. In your faithfulness, answer me in your righteousness. Enter not into judgment with your servant, for no man living is righteous before you. For the enemy has pursued me. He has crushed my life to the ground. He has made me sit in darkness like those long dead. Therefore, my spirit faints within me. My heart within me is appalled. I remember the days of old. I remember, I meditate on all that you have done. I muse on what your hands have wrought. I stretch out my hands to you. My soul thirsts for you like a parched land. Selah. Make haste to answer me, O Lord. My spirit fails. Hide not your face from me, lest I be like those who go down to the pit. Let me hear in the morning of your steadfast love, for in you I put my trust. Teach me the way I should go. For to you I lift up my soul. Deliver me, O Lord, from my enemies. I have fled to you for refuge. Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Let your good spirit lead me on a level path. For your name's sake, O Lord, preserve my life. In your righteousness, bring me out of trouble, and in your steadfast love, cut off my enemies. Destroy all my adversaries, for I am your servant. And our antiphon, do not hide your face from me. In you I put my trust. Glory be to the Father, to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. We've been reflecting and praying with Psalm 143 on this Good Friday with Sarah Christmeyer. You can find her at Come Into the Word. 
www.sarahmcgrath.com where you can find her book, Creating Me a Clean Heart. Sarah, thank you. You are welcome. God bless you. You're listening to a special Good Friday edition of the Sunrise Morning Show. It's 35 past the hour. Did you give up coffee or caffeine for Lent? Be sure to check out the tea and decaf offerings from the Mystic Monks of Wyoming. Find a link to Mystic Monk Coffee at sunrisemorningshow.com. When you make a purchase after clicking our link, we earn a commission to help support the show. The monks also have their seasonal favorite Pasca Java available for you to buy now in anticipation of your Easter Sunday feast. And why not add a Sunrise Morning Show mug to include in the Easter basket? Find those mugs and a Mystic Monk Coffee link at sonrisemorningshow.com. The most original Catholic content is on EWTN Radio. This is Father Joseph Mary. This week on Mother Angelica Answering the Call, in the light of Easter, Mother discusses faith and the women at the tomb. Also, what is a point of confession and how often should we go? And how should we start praising God? Mother Angelica Answering the Call, Sunday afternoon, 2 Eastern, on EWTN Radio. This is Father Michael Mary Dosh from St. Gertrude. During the season of Lent, let us reflect upon the lifeless body of Christ as he's taken down from the cross, from the Gospel of Mark. Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And Pilate wondered if he were already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the body to Joseph. A meditation by St. Catherine de Ricci. My child, We must run this same race and without restraint throw ourselves into the great sea that we may be washed and cleansed. Let us mark our foreheads with that sacred blood and say that his only begotten Son has paid our debts and that we have competed and won the red and ruddy prize of victory, which is the crucified Jesus, spattered with blood and lifeless for the sake of love. Let us pray. O Jesus, your mother embraced your crucified body at the foot of the cross. Grant us by your blood to cling to you in all our trials. Amen. It's a special Good Friday edition of the Sunrise Morning Show, and I'm happy to be joined by Dr. Brant Petrie now. You can subscribe to his Mass Readings Explained videos at catholicproductions.com, and he is author most pertinently to this discussion of Jesus the Bridegroom, the greatest love story ever told. Dr. Petrie, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me, Annie. It's great to be back. Now, before we get to the story of the crucifixion itself, can you give us just a quick overview of how we see Jesus in the Gospels sort of setting himself up as a groom? Yeah, I think this is one of those things that it's easy to miss, because if you're not a Jewish reader of the Gospels, you can kind of miss some of the clues. And there's two key passages that I like to point to that show Jesus setting himself up in this way. The first one is the famous story of the wedding at Cana, where Jesus goes to a Jewish wedding, his mother's there, they run out of the wine, Mary says to him, they have no wine, and Jesus famously says, you know, what's that to me and to you? My hour has not yet come. And then he goes on to perform a miracle, providing the wine for the wedding, and the disciples begin to believe in him. So this is an interesting story. It's in John chapter 2, because it's the first miracle that Jesus performs. And so it's kind of like the kickoff to his public ministry of miracles. Yet it's a strange one, right? Like, he could have done any number of things for his first miracle, right? He could have cast out a demon if he wanted to show he had power over the devil, or he could have raised someone from the dead if he wanted to show he had power over death. 
Or if he wanted to show he was just the greatest prophet ever, he could have given, you know, like an amazing sermon. But to change water into wine at a Jewish wedding is a, a bit of a strange thing. And then why does Jesus connect it with his hour when Mary asks him to do it, right? Why does he say, my hour has not yet come? And if you look at it in its first century Jewish context, what this reveals to us is that Jesus is actually taking the role of a bridegroom. And in fact, Mary's inviting him to take that role. Because in the first century, as today, it wasn't the responsibility of a guest to provide the wine at a wedding, right? Uh, I mean, that would be the responsibility of the host, in particular of the, of the groom and the, and, and the bride. So when Mary invites Jesus to provide the wine for the wedding, she's in a sense asking him to, I, to take the role of the bridegroom. Uh, and sure enough, whenever after the miracle is performed, tells us in John chapter 2, verse 9, when the steward of the feast tasted the water now become wine and didn't know where it came from, the steward of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, every man serves a good wine first, and when men have drunk freely, the poor wine, but you've kept the good wine until now. So John gives us that because it's ironic, because the actual bridegroom at the wedding had no idea what had happened. Who was the bridegroom who provided the wine? Well, it was Christ himself, right? So what, what's going on here is Jesus is revealing that he's not just the Messiah, but that he also is the bridegroom Messiah, and that somehow the imagery of the wedding and the wine are going to be connected with the hour, which is the hour of his passion and his death. Um, and in, in John's Gospel, in chapter 3, we see the same thing whenever some people ask John the Baptist, hey, are you the Messiah? And John says to him, nope, I'm not the Messiah. I am the friend of the bridegroom, which was a Jewish term for, like, the best man. If you want to know who the Messiah is, look for the guy with the bride, because he who has the bride, he says in chapter 3, is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom, meaning the best man, who stands and hears him, must decrease, and he must increase. Another clue there that Jesus is not just the Messiah, he's the bridegroom Messiah. So I think that's really important, Andy, because what it shows us is, from the beginning of his ministry, he has this idea about who he is. And in a sense, the very first miracle Jesus performs wants to reveal to us that his mission is going to be one of love. It's going to be one that's ordered toward inaugurating a marriage, although it's still kind of mysterious exactly as to, you know, who his bride is. So in order to look at that a little more carefully, we also want to look at a second passage that's in Mark chapter 2. And this really takes us even a little closer to the crucifixion. It's a famous story uh, of when Jesus' disciples aren't fasting, and other Jews recognize it. They say, hey, why do, why do John's disciples fast and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples don't fast? And Jesus responds to them, with this strange saying, can the sons of the bride chamber fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days are coming when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast on that day. So you can imagine his, you know, like the Pharisees who asked him that, went away scratching their heads, like, what's this dude talking about? I mean, it's kind of a strange way to respond to a question, because it really is a kind of a riddle in which Jesus is presuming that you will understand an ancient Jewish wedding service and what it was like. So just a little background, and we'll, we'll show you what it means here. So in a first-century Jewish setting, unlike today, a wedding didn't last just one night. It would actually last for seven days. And then during that time period, the groom would be surrounded by these men who were called the sons of the bride chamber, who were basically the ancient Jewish equivalent of the groomsmen, right? Mm -hmm. They were part of the wedding party, and they were the ones who would actually carry the bride 
and the groom in procession to this special room called the bride chamber, or the chuppah in Hebrew, where the, the groom and the, and the bride would consummate their marriage on the, on, the, on the final night of the wedding week. So what Jesus is saying here is, look, if you've been to a wedding, you know, wedding guests don't fast. So what Jesus is doing here in the riddle is he's basically saying, my disciples are like the groomsmen, and I am the bridegroom. And as long as they're with me, they can't fast. Like, as long as we're in the wedding week of the great Jewish wedding celebration, they can't fast. But the day is coming when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and they will fast on that day. Mm. Now, what's he referring to there? Well, that would be the night of consummation. It would be when the bridegroom they would no longer stay with his friends, but he would go with his bride into the bride chamber to consummate the marriage. And then, you know, all the rest of the groomsmen would go away sad, that they had lost one uh, one more buddy to the old ball and chain, you know, like mm-hmm. that's that's when they would fast or you know or, or mourn, so to speak, at the loss of the bridegroom. So he's taking that experience from the Jewish wedding and he's applying it to obviously the crucifixion. What is the day when he will be taken away from his disciples? What's well, the day of the cross? It's Good Friday, and so basically what he's saying is when my death takes place, when the crucifixion takes place they will fast on that day, because that day will be my wedding day. Wow. That's how he's describing the crucifixion. Now, you've got to think about it. Two things strike me about this, Annie. First, that's a weird way to describe an execution, right? Yeah. I mean, I know some guys who will say that the day they got married was, <laughs> was the day of their funeral, right? Like, <laughs> but I've never heard of any guy, ever, any man ever say that his funeral day was his wedding day. You see? Sure. So what Jesus is doing is he's inverting it because he's no ordinary bridegroom, and this is not going to be any ordinary wedding. Yeah, uh, and the- you, you talk in the book about three key events of the Passion that show parallels with an ancient Jewish wedding. So I'm hoping we can go through those, Dr. Petrie. Can you first of all tell us about the crowning with thorns? Okay, yeah. So the amazing thing, Annie, is that he doesn't just do this with these riddles, but when you get to the passion narrative, if you know a Jewish wedding, you're going to see some parallels. So, number one, first thing, as we know from the passion, one of the first things they do with Jesus after they sentence him to death is they bring him out and they mock him by dressing him up in royal garments and crowning him with thorns, you know, and saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Now, obviously, on the historical level, the soldiers there are just mocking him for for claiming to be the Messiah. But any Jew who knew Jewish wedding customs would have recognized that that was one of the things that a bridegroom would wear on his wedding day. So like the Song of Solomon, as well as ancient Jewish writings outside the Bible, talk about the fact that on the wedding day, the way you would know who the bridegroom was is that you would look for the guy with the crown, because the one wearing a crown was the groom. Why? Because he was king for a day. He was like a new Adam. Right, yeah. who was and his bride was like the new Eve, and they were reenacting that first wedding in the Garden of Eden, but now with a new wedding. So Jesus, when he comes out with the crown of thorns, it's revealing him as the true bridegroom. Now, what parallel do you draw, Doctor Petrie, between a Jewish wedding and the casting of lots for that seamless garment that Jesus was wearing during the Passion? Yeah, this is one of the most poignant moments in the Passion because what the soldiers are basically doing is taking away Jesus' final possession, which is this linen undergarment that he was wearing, and they, you know, they don't want to tear it, so they cast lots for it. 
you might think, oh, well, that's just his undergarment. You know, it's just his clothing, and it's showing that he's being divested of everything he has. And that's true on the historical level. But again, a Jewish witness, a Jewish reader of the New Testament would have written, recognized that that white linen garment called a ketone was also a priestly vestment. Mm. That's what priests would wear when they would go into the temple to offer sacrifice. And on a Jewish wedding day, the other way you would recognize the bridegroom is not just that he would wear a crown, but that he would be dressed up like a priest, that he would be wearing a seamless linen garment to show that he was not just king for a day, but he was like a priest for a day, because he was entering into the covenant offering of himself to his bride, and that he was like a new Adam, who was both priest and king. So when John's Gospel in chapter 19 focuses on the seamless garment, he's signaling to us that Christ is both king and priest, and that this is his wedding day. He's dressed like a bridegroom. And just quickly, Dr. Petrie, why is it that they don't tear the garment? Oh, well, they don't want to tear it because they basically want to keep it whole for themselves. So they don't want to rip it. But also, there was a law in the Old Testament. It's really fascinating. I'm sure the soldiers don't know this, but John knows it when he's telling us about it, that in Exodus chapter 28 in the book of Leviticus, that the garment of the high priest, there was a law against it being torn. It had to be seamless, and it could not be torn. So by inadvertently, by not wanting to tear the garment, the soldiers cast lot for it, they reveal to us that it's a, that Jesus' priestly garment. Because what's he about to do? He's about to go to the altar of the cross and offer the sacrifice of himself for his bride, the Church. Now, the final key event that you point to in Jesus the Bridegroom uh, as being a parallel to a Jewish wedding is the piercing of his side. Now, that sounds like a really painful thing to happen during a wedding. How, how does this link to a Jewish wedding? Yeah, no, this one's really mysterious. But again, remember, he's no ordinary groom, and this is no ordinary wedding. So at the very end of John's account in chapter 19, which is the... By the way, we always read John's Gospel, John's account of the Passion, on Good Friday. So this is really appropriate that John in particular sees Jesus as the Divine Bridegroom, as the Bridegroom Messiah. But in John's account, chapter 19, verse 32 and following, it says that in order to get the bodies off of the crosses before the Sabbath came, the soldiers came to break the legs of the men so that they would die quickly. Because the reason you would, the way you would die on the cross is through asphyxiation. So if they break their legs, they wouldn't any longer be able to hold their bodies up, right? But they would die more quickly. But it says that when they saw, came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they didn't break his leg. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. And then John, like, stops the gospel, and he says, he who saw this bears witness, his testimony is true, and he knows he tells the truth that you may also believe. So in other words, he's like saying, look, I saw this blood and water flow from the side of Jesus. I'm telling you so that you'll believe. So clearly it's important, but, but what does it mean? What would it have meant in a first-century context? Well, one thing that strikes me in, in light of everything else that John's been showing us about Jesus' bridegroom is that it harkens back to the book of Genesis. Because if you go back to the very first wedding of Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 2, how does that wedding take place? Well, it takes place when God put Adam into a deep sleep, and then from his side, literally in Hebrew it says, from his side, Selah, the Lord took his flesh and built a woman, built a wife, and then brought the wife to him and gave her to him to be his bride. And he says, 
this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called a woman, right? And so Adam takes this woman to be his wife. That's the first wedding ceremony. In other words, in the first wedding, the bride is miraculously created from the side of the first groom, Adam. And now, when you fast forward to the cross, what do we see? Jesus, the true bridegroom, the new Adam, falls into the sleep of death. And what comes from his side is the blood and the water, the water that will give life to his bride, church, in the sacrament of baptism, and then the blood that will feed her, that will cleanse her in the sacrament of the Eucharist. So this is revealing Jesus as a new Adam. And the way he gives life to his bride is, in a sense, similar to the first Adam, except Jesus falls into the sleep of death in order to offer himself for the salvation of the world. And, and I'm not the first one to see this, by the way. Centuries ago, St. Augustine said, as Eve came from the side of the sleeping Adam, so the Church was born from the side of the suffering Christ. Because that's really the origin of the Church's existence. She comes into existence because of the love of Jesus, through his sacrificial death on the cross. And that's kind of, in a sense, the consummation, the completion of Jesus' wedding day on Good Friday. Well, Dr. Petrie, this is all really incredible information when we look at the Passion through the lens of an ancient Jewish wedding. But what does this mean to us? Why is this significant for us who are now part of the Church that was born from his side on the cross? Yeah, there's a couple of reasons that I'd point to. Number one, the first thing I'd say, Annie, is if you go back to that parable where Jesus said, as long as the, the groom is with them, the wedding guests can't fast, but when he's taken away from them, they'll fast on that day. This is why we fast on Good Friday. Like, sometimes people wonder, why is Good Friday a day of fasting? You know, why, do I, why would I abstain from food and drink and from meat and things like that uh, on this day? What's the big deal? Well, it's in memory of our bridegroom who loved us and gave himself for us on the cross. Why are we doing this? out of love. We fast out of love and out of memory and in honor of the bridegroom who loved us and gave himself for us, as Paul says. Uh, that's the first thing. The second thing I would say is that it shows to us that the crucifixion of Jesus of Nazareth was not just an execution. Like, if you would have been there and you were watching it that day on Good Friday, all you might see, like if you were a passerby, you would just see one more Jewish man being executed by, you know, one more cohort of cruel Roman soldiers. You'd just see it as an execution, as capital punishment. But that's not what's really going on, because Jesus laid down his life willingly. No one took it from him. He says that in the Gospel of John. What's really going on on Good Friday is not an execution. It is a wedding. It's a sacrificial act of love on his part for us. And St. Paul tells us that in Ephesians chapter 5. He says that Christ loved the Church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word. And that this is a great mystery. I mean it in reference to Christ and the Church. So that's in Ephesians chapter 5. So what Paul's saying here is that at its deepest mystery, the crucifixion is an act of divine love. Because Jesus, and St. Thomas Aquinas actually says this, that God could have saved the world. He could have saved us simply by declaring us forgiven. He has that power as God. But he wanted to not just save us from the fires of hell. He wanted to show us that he loves us with an infinite love, that he loves us with a love that's so passionate and so 
complete that the only way it could be expressed would be through the image of a wedding. But he wants to not just save us from hell, he wants us to he wants to be united with us like a bridegroom with his bride in this spiritual marriage between Christ and the church. So when he comes into the world to go and die on the cross, he does it in the form of a Jewish wedding to show us that ultimately the reason for his mission in the world, the reason for his incarnation and the reason for the crucifixion is his love for us. And as the Bible says in First Peter, love covers a multitude of sin. That's what makes Jesus' cross so powerful. It's not just how much he suffered, it's how much he loved. Because infinite love covers an infinite multitude of sins. And it's able to bridge that gap between us and God that our sin has brought to the world. It's through his love that we're saved. That's really what it's all about. And if Christians, if people know that, that's, that's the good news, right? It can awaken our hearts on the, on, that's why we call it Good Friday, right? There's nothing good about an execution, but there's something very, very good about God revealing how much he loves us so that we can love him in return. Well, Dr. Brant Petrie, thank you so much for unpacking this for us, Jesus's Wedding Day. The book is Jesus, the Bridegroom, the Greatest Love Story Ever Told. You can also find his mass readings, explain videos, subscribe to them at catholicproductions.com. Dr. Petrie, thank you so much and a, a blessed rest of your tour to him to you. Yes, you too, Annie. And then and, and when it comes, I hope you have a happy Easter. Before we close out the hour, I thought I'd end with a quick quote from St. Francis de Sales, a doctor of the church. He said this, Mount Calvary is the mount of lovers. All love that does not take its origin from the Savior's passion is foolish and perilous. Unhappy is love without the Savior's death. Love and death are so mingled in the Savior's passion that we cannot have one in our hearts without the other. Upon Calvary, we cannot have life without love or love without the Redeemer's death. That'll do it for this special Good Friday edition of the Sunrise Morning Show. For Matt Swaim and Paul Lockman, I'm Anna Mitchell. May God bless you and keep you and grant you his peace. I'm Jeanette DeMello, Editor-in-Chief of the National Catholic Register, and together with Matthew Bunsen, I co-host Register Radio, where every week we talk to the Register's writers and editors about the news you need to know and offer authentic Catholic insight on the important stories that impact your life. Join us for Register Radio, Saturday at 4 p.m. Eastern and Sunday at 11 a.m. Eastern, here on EWTN Global Catholic Radio. EWTN. Live Truth. Live Catholic. The Catholic Church sees the Eucharist as the source and summit of the Christian life, to which the other sacraments are oriented. Our Holy Mass is next on EWTN Radio. Our Lenten meditation today is for the death of Jesus on Good Friday. And I have to read to you a bit of the scripture I've chosen St. Luke, chapter 23. Two others also, who were criminals, were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place which is called the skull, they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right, one on the left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. This incredible statement of the Messiah 
should be taken by all of us, I think, to be the absolution of the world from sin and its redemption. In a certain sense, the salvation of everyone, the absolution of the sin of everyone, their own personal sins and the curse of the first parents is taken away. We only have by the grace of God to receive it because it is done. It is done long ago. It's extremely important that today on Good Friday, you engrave deeply into your soul the event of the redemption. I only wish that everyone in the United States who calls themselves a Christian could take this day to write with the mind a cross on their heart so that every day we would remember that Christ has saved us and that he has saved us by his suffering and death. Every day we need to remember that and to rejoice in his mercy and salvation. EWTN Global Catholic Radio presents The Seven Last Words of Christ with Bishop Robert Barron, introduced by Timothy Cardinal Dolan.
Please kneel. We gather here on this Good Friday to keep vigil and pray with our Savior during the hours of his passion. May the time we spend this afternoon draw us closer to the suffering Christ. In order to maintain a reverent pace while praying together, we ask everyone to please pause at each slash mark. Lord Jesus, you ask us to carry our cross each day. We have not always followed your teachings, your way of life, and yet you love us without conditions. Today we come to you in our weakness. Give us courage to stand by you in your agony, now and whenever you share in that suffering enters our own lives. Help us to do the Father's will and make us selfless in our charity towards all. Jesus said, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Lord, help us to follow you. Jesus said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Lord, help us to follow you. Jesus said, unless you turn and become like little children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Lord, help us to follow you. Jesus said, woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are filled now, for you will be hungry. Lord, help us to follow you. Good Friday blessings to all of you, and welcome, welcome to St. Patrick's Cathedral for this traditional treore, three hour, three hours of prayer and union with Jesus in his passion and cross. Uh, during these three hours of prayer and meditation, the sacrament of penance will be available as well. Confessors are available at a confessional uh, in the back and also behind here, uh, there's two confessionals. You'd be welcome to avail yourself of the sacrament of penance. In a special way, not only do I welcome all of you, but a special word of welcome to uh, Cardinal Justin Regali, the Archbishop Emeritus of Philadelphia, who was with us last evening as preacher for the Liturgy of the Lord's Supper. And I'm especially grateful for the presence of Father Robert Barron, who is the preacher for the seven last words of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Father Barron, well known to many of you, a priest of the Archdiocese of Chicago, and the um, the, uh, the one who uh, gave us the excellent uh, acclaimed Catholicism series that is now uh, sweeping the country, a great source of grace, mercy, and, and uh, evangelization. So Father Barron, we especially welcome you and thank you for being with us to lead us in prayer for the seven last words.
and a welcome as well to those who unite with us in prayer on radio and television. These three hours will conclude, obviously, at 3 o'clock, and at 3.30 we have the official liturgy of the church, the Passion, the liturgy of our Lord's Passion at 3.30, to which you're all welcome. Father Barron. Praise be Jesus Christ. Remnants, thank you so much for that kind welcome, and thank you for inviting me to give these um, talks on this very important moment of prayer. You know, yesterday I um, flew into New York. It was a day much like today, really bright, beautiful, clear. And the plane was flying into LaGuardia, so I came right up Manhattan Island. And um, looking down at the buildings and all standing out with such clarity. And what occurred to me was, you know, many people say New York is the capital of modern secularism. And that's true to some degree, I suppose. But whenever I look down on New York, I think of holy New York. I think, for example, of Thomas Merton, whose conversion commenced when he was just down Fifth Avenue at the old Scribner's bookstore. And he saw a book by the French philosopher Etienne Gilson. Merton bought that book, and it started the process by which he became a Catholic. He was, of course, baptized up in Morningside Heights, up at Corpus Christi Church. I think, too, of Rose Hawthorne, the daughter of the great Nathaniel Hawthorne, the American novelist. She began her saintly work among victims of cancer here in New York. I think, too, of Dorothy Day, who founded the first of the Catholic worker houses down in the Lower East Side. And, of course, I think of one of my great heroes. It's my privilege to be standing in his pulpit now. I'm talking about Archbishop Fulton Sheen, buried just a few yards from where I'm standing. And so it's really a privilege, Your Eminence. Thank you again for inviting me to this holy city of New York. Well, friends, we're going to be here for some time. And that, to me, is one of the great virtues of the Tre Ore prayer. We are such a go-go society. We're always moving somewhere, restless, uneasy. It's now time to sit. And in real time, to watch with the Lord Jesus Christ as he suffers and dies on the cross. So maybe put aside your restless thoughts. Put aside your preoccupations, your worries. And let's spend this good quality time with the Lord. What's going to happen, of course, is some preaching, some proclamation of the scripture, some beautiful music. Thomas Aquinas said that God's providence extends to particulars. A fancy way of saying that God is providentially present to every one of us here and now. God has brought everyone here to this place for a purpose. Maybe to hear something from my sermons. Maybe just to hear a word from scripture. Maybe something from one of the hymns. Let that wash over you during these three hours. Set aside your cares, anxieties, preoccupations. Let the Lord speak. Christ was high priest. He reconciled us to God. And that's why his cross is a great altar where a sacrifice took place. Christ is king the one who guides us to the Father. 
And that's why his cross is a great throne from which he reigns. But Christ was also prophet, the speaker of the divine truth. And that's why his cross is a pulpit from which a last great sermon went forth. The seven last words constitute that sermon. Let's now prayerfully attend to it. We invite you now to stand and join in singing Soul of My Savior. first word. When they came to the place called the Skull, they crucified him and the criminals there, one on his right, the other on his left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do.
Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Friends, how central to the life and ministry of Jesus was forgiveness. His words to the paralyzed man, who symbolizes all of us paralyzed by sin, my son, your sins are forgiven. To the woman caught in adultery, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. At the very heart of the great prayer he taught us, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Forgiveness was central to Jesus' preaching and ministry. Here's the one thing I want you to take from this particular sermon. Forgiveness is not primarily an internal act, not a mere intention or velleity. Forgiveness is an act. The Bible sees sin as a great swamp. It's a great morass. It's a great net or network in which we find ourselves trapped. You're unkind to me, so I'll be unkind to you which awakens in you an answering unkindness, which awakens in me an answering cruelty. On and on it goes, across space and time. Injustice awakens answering injustice. Violence awakens counter-violence. And before you know it, we find ourselves stuck, trapped. What's forgiveness? Not a mere intention. Forgiveness is a way out. Forgiveness is a path forward. Now, to grasp this, I think it's very helpful to look at the heart of the Sermon on the Mount. And we find those still startling, challenging words. Love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who maltreat you. Someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn and give them the other. Someone takes you to trial for your coat, give them your cloak as well. Love your enemies. Do you see how that little line shows the way out? You become my enemy through some act of cruelty or violence or injustice. What's the natural response? I will be cruel and unjust to you. It is only when we muster the courage and the capacity to love our enemies that we can break that cycle. Attend to, to the famous examples that Jesus gives. Someone strikes you on the right cheek, what should you do? Well, you know, in the face of violence or injustice, there are two classical responses, aren't there? true in the animal kingdom as well as in the human society. The two responses are fight or flight. Someone strikes you, well, fight back. Fight fire with fire, making the whole world hotter. Gandhi said that, an eye for an eye, yes, making the whole world blind. We know that in the long run, answering violence with violence tends not to solve the problem. So the second great response is flight. Someone's cruel, unjust to you, well, run away, acquiesce, give in. Does that solve the problem? No, it just confirms the violent person or institution and it's violent. 
What's Jesus giving us here? He's giving us a way out. A third way, if you want. He says, if someone strikes you on the right cheek, well, see, in his time, you wouldn't have used your left hand for any kind of interaction. It was unclean. Therefore, if someone strikes you on the right cheek, it means they're hitting you like this, with the back of their hand. It was a sign of contempt, the way you treat a slave or an inferior. Someone does that to you, what should you do? Fight back? No. Run away? Uh-uh. Jesus says, stand your ground and turn the other cheek. What are you doing thereby? You, you are signaling to that person that you refuse to cooperate with the world he's living in. You refuse to be treated that way again. You mirror back to the violent person his violence, hoping thereby to lure him into a new spiritual and moral space. Let me give you an example. Bishop Tutu of South Africa, before he was a famous figure, he was a simple priest, was making his way along a raised wooden platform over the muddy uh, sidewalk. And he came face to face with a white man who was a racist. Broadly, he said, I do. <laughs> That's turning the other cheek, not fighting back, but not running but rather in this humorous, provocative way, mirroring back to that person his violence. Another example from Mother Teresa, I saw some of her sisters here in the front. Famous story about Mother Teresa finding a abandoned, starving child in the streets of Calcutta. Took her by the hand, brought her to a baker's shop and begged for some bread. The baker spat full in Mother Teresa's face, at which point the saint said, Thank you for that gift for me. Now perhaps something for the child. Fighting back? No. But not running away. Rather mirroring back to that violent person his violence. Hoping thereby to draw him into a new space. You know who knew this principle and practiced it brilliantly? With John Paul II. I remember very vividly the days when he arrived in Poland. Many of us were afraid of World War III breaking out. John Paul went into the belly of the beast, confronted this tyrannical government, but didn't fight it with the weapons of the world. But by God, he didn't run. What did he do? He stood his ground and talked about God and talked about creation human dignity, human freedom, human rights. And as he did, you remember that first time he visited Warsaw, June of 1979, as he did, the crowds began to chant, we want God, we want God, we want God. And the chant went on, they say, for 15 minutes. Can you imagine almost a million people chanting, we want God. And they say what John Paul did during that chant was, he simply turned to the Polish government who were sitting behind him as if to say, you're finished. <laughs> he didn't fight them, but by God, he didn't run. 
Rather, he mirrored back to them their injustice, mirrored back to them their violence. Do you see, hoping to draw them into a new spiritual space. Someone told me when I was a kid, back in the 1970s, that the Soviet Union would collapse with barely a shot being fired, and one of the main protagonists would be the Pope of Rome. I would think you're in a fantasy world. That's exactly what happened, though. Peter Moran, along with Dorothy Day, the founder of the Catholic Worker Movement, said, it's time that we blow up some of the dynamite of the church. Dunamis, Paul's word, means power. Power. What's the power? Not worldly power, but the power of forgiving love, which can indeed change lives and can change whole societies. We've seen it happen. You know, a few years ago, in the seminary where I teach, a student told me about a martial art called Aikido. This kid was trained in the martial arts, and Aikido is a martial art. It's an art of war. But the purpose of Aikido is not to engage the opponent directly, fighting fire with fire. Rather, in Aikido, you use the momentum and violence of your opponent against him. So as he comes at you, you definitely get out of the way, send him flying. You definitely move out of the way as he comes with his full weight against you. He told me the purpose of Aikido is not to harm or kill your opponent. The purpose is to leave your opponent laughing on the ground, realizing he can't possibly defeat you. Do you see how turning the other cheek, as I've been describing it, forgiveness in this sense, is a kind of Aikido. It's a way of responding to the violence of the world that actually extricates us from the morass of sin. Actually is a way out of the great swamp of violence meeting counter-violence. Now, now, think of that cross of Jesus Christ. Thomas Aquinas said, the purest exemplification of the Beatitudes is the cross. Love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who maltreat you. Where do we see that? We see it precisely in the cross of Jesus. And we hear it in those magnificent words. Father, forgive them. What is that? It's not fighting fire with fire, but by God, it's not running. Do you see how the cross of Jesus is a kind of great act of Aikido? As he allows all of the darkness of the world to wash over him and then be swallowed up in the ever greater divine mercy. Not fighting fire with fire, making the whole world hotter. Not an eye for an eye, making the whole world blind. But swallowing up all the dysfunction evil of the world precisely through the divine forgiveness. That's why we say that Jesus is the Lamb of God who, listen, takes away the sin of the world. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do.
though he was in the form of God, Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Rather, he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. At the name of Jesus, every knee must bow and tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every other name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. At the name of Jesus every knee must bow and tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Almighty and everlasting God, you willed that our Savior should become man and undergo the torment of the cross as an example of humility for all humanity. Grant that we may follow in his suffering as to share in his glorious resurrection. We ask this through the same Christ our Lord. Amen. Won't you please stand and sing, O Sacred Head Surrounded.
the second word. Now one of the criminals hanging there reviled Jesus, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. The other, however, rebuking him, said in reply, Have you no fear of God? For you are subject to the same condemnation. And indeed, we have been condemned justly, for the sentence we received corresponds to our crimes. But this man has done nothing criminal. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He replied to him, Amen, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise.
Amen, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Friends, what is it about the words of the good thief that are so moving to us? Jesus, remember me. And what's so powerful about this response? Today you'll be with me in paradise. Dismas is the name, of course, the tradition gives to the good thief. We know almost nothing about him. But we know the essentials. He realized he was a sinner, and he reached out to Jesus. And fellow sinners, that's what it comes down to at the end of the day. Chesterton said, there are saints in my religion. That just means people that know they are sinners. Dismas would never be tempted to say, I'm okay and you're okay, would he? He knows there's something very wrong with him. Remember the song was out a couple years ago by Christina Aguilera? Pretty melody, but she says in that song, I am beautiful in every single way, and your words can't get me down. Well, that's the language of modern, you know, sort of self-esteem culture, but it's not the language of the Bible. Rather, those who are directed toward the light, John the Cross said that, are more, not less aware of their sins. That's why this man, so close to Jesus, in such proximity to him, realizes that he's a sinner. Very good. And he reaches out to the right source. Now, here's the thing, though, that's very peculiar. Here's a man who's being crucified. Whom does he reach out to? Another man being crucified. I mean, doesn't the other thief seem to have it more correct? I mean, hey, if you're the Son of God, save yourself and us. But the good thief being crucified reaches out to another man being crucified who says to him, this day you will be with me in paradise. Friends, here's the high paradox of the Christian faith. Thomas Aquinas said, happiness, now please put this on your screensaver, put it up on your refrigerator, any place you'd see it, take it to the bank spiritually. Thomas Aquinas said, you want to be happy, here's the formula. Despise what Jesus despised on the cross and love what Jesus loved on the cross, you'll be happy. Now, take my word for it here, I'll try to explain this, but I think you can take that right to the bank. All kinds of self-help books, aren't there, about what makes us happy. You can find a thousand of them at Barnes & Noble. Throw them all away. Here's what makes you happy. Despise what Jesus despised on the cross. Love what he loved on the cross. You'll be happy. Now, how do we make sense of that? Thomas Aquinas said, following St. Augustine, we are all wired for God. That's true of everybody in this room. It's true of all the new atheists. It's true of people that deny God explicitly. Like it or not, we are wired for God because we are wired for ultimate happiness. Honestly, fellow sinners, does anything in this world make you finally happy? We all know the answer to that question. But Aquinas said, in our sin, we make four great mistakes. We search for God, for ultimate happiness, in four bad places. In wealth, in pleasure, in power, 
and in honor. I found dealing with people over the years, dealing with my own weak soul, there's no exception to that. What we tend to look for as a substitute for God are wealth, pleasure, power, or honor. Anything wrong with wealth? No, not in itself. But wealth isn't God. And therefore, what happens? When you hook your infinite desire for God onto wealth, you will become, in short order, dissatisfied and addicted. You know, the old spiritual masters used that word concupiscence, meaning errant desire. But I think a very legitimate rendering of concupiscence in our time would be addiction. I've hooked my desire for God onto wealth, so what do I do? I strive and strive and strive for wealth. And let's say my great dream comes true. I have my first million by 30. What does that produce? A buzz. It produces a great delight. What happens to that buzz, though? Talk to anyone addicted to, to alcohol or to drugs, pornography. What happens? That buzz wears off. Because we're not wired for wealth, we're wired for God. Now what do I do? Now I start striving harder, harder, harder to get more wealth. And maybe by 40 I make my first 10 million, which produces a buzz which lasts a shorter time. And now I panic. And I find myself moving obsessively and addictively around that goal of wealth. About 10 years ago, I was working at a parish on the North Shore. That's uh, the suburbs north of Chicago, the wealthiest area of Chicago. I finished Mass, I was still in the rectory, and the knock came to the door. And there appeared a man, typical North Shore gentleman, about 45, well-dressed, beautifully coiffed, well-spoken, well-educated. Father, could we talk? I said, sure. He sat down and he said, Father, all my dreams have come true. And so summoning all my training in psychology and theology, and I said, great. <laughs> and then he said, and I'm miserable. Terrific, terrific bit of self-diagnosis. I said, what were your dreams? They were all the North Shore dreams. The first million by 30, head of my company by 40, 10 million by 50. And he had them all. He had the wealth, the home, the power he wanted. And he was miserable. And I told him why. I said, you're not wired for that. You're wired for God. Wealth is fine in itself, but it's not God. And when you make it God, you become miserable and addicted. What's the second great substitute? Pleasure. Anything wrong with pleasure? No. Catholics like pleasure. Pleasure of food and drink and sex and sensuality. Hilaire Belloc said, wherever the Catholic sun does shine, there's music and laughter and good red wine. That's Catholicism. We, we're not puritanical. In fact, I always find Puritanism is a sign of spiritual corruption. We're not dualists. We're not Puritans. But, but, pleasure isn't God. When I turn it into God, in short order, I become addicted to it. Now, again, talk to anybody who's fallen into an addiction to alcohol or to drugs 
or to pornography or to sex. What's happened there is a finite good, namely pleasure, has been turned into God. And that turns me, in short order, into an addict. What's the third one? Power. Is power good? Yes, God's described as all-powerful, so power can't be bad in itself. Power rightly exercised in church and society, in families, is a good thing. But listen now, power isn't God. When I turn it into God, in short order, I become addicted to it. Remember the Lord of the Rings films we all watched, what, 10 years ago now? What's the ring? It's a ring of power, isn't it? I mean, Tolkien intuited that with great clarity. The most seductive temptation is the temptation toward power. Do you remember the scene of all three movies, you know, which features great battles and orcs and all sorts of wicked things, but you know what scene I found most frightening in The Lord of the Rings? In the very beginning when Gandalf, the great wizard, great positive figure, right, comes to the home of Bilbo, who had the ring, and Gandalf, the great Gandalf, the good Gandalf, sees the ring of power. And there's this, there's this frightening moment when you can see in his eyes that he's attracted to it. And you think, oh gosh, if Gandalf goes bad, we're in serious trouble. But even the great Gandalf, and of course, at the climax of that movie, Frodo, who was the courageous bearer of the ring, who resisted its temptation, its lure, at the end, even Frodo gives in. You know, a few years ago, my nephew is now 12. It must have been eight or nine years ago. He's a little guy. And our whole family was out at Mundelein Seminary, where I teach, for Fourth of July. And at a certain point, we all had to cross the street to get to the ball field. And so people are saying, oh, be careful, be careful, it might be a car coming. Well, Drew, who was three or four at the time, there was one person in that group he could possibly boss around, his little sister, Lauren, who was about two. And what did I see Drew doing? But turning to Lauren with great energy. Don't, don't, watch it, don't go. And I thought the one person he could boss around, he did. Power, from the time we're little till the time we're old, is a great seductive thing. That's why, for example, in Matthew's Gospel, the three great temptations the devil gives to Christ, what's the highest one? The temptation to power. You turn power into God, you become addicted to it in short order. Last one, honor. There are many people that they don't really care that much about wealth, pleasure, or power. They can live without those. They've got those in the right order. But they are addicted to honor. Titles, rewards, being recognized, the esteem of others. When I was a little kid, I would bring my papers into my father. My father was a wonderful man. And I'd show him my papers and my tests with their you know, good grades on them. And he said, kiddo, that's terrific. I'm so proud of you. Well, that gave me a buzz, you know, as it does. We like to be honored. And so I'd go back to school and I'd strive and work and work to get those grades so I could get the honor from my father. And he would dutifully give it to me year in, year out. But of course, in time, that buzz wore off. I thought, I need to be honored by more people than my dad. I mean, he's, he's my father. He'll honor me anyway. So I better get my high school teachers. I better get my college professors. 
I'll even go across the ocean to Paris and get my doctoral teachers to honor me. I was ordained about two years maybe, and I had just said mass, delivered a homily, which I thought was pretty good, and I'm giving out communion to the people, body of Christ, body of Christ. And a man came up to me and I said, the body of Christ, and he said, that was the worst sermon I ever heard. <laughs> well, I mean, when you're an honor junkie, that's a little difficult to take in, you know? Honor's good. Aquinas said honor is the flag of virtue. It's a good way to think about it, isn't it? That when you're honored, it's a flag that's meant to signal to others, oh, look, there's something worth emulating. So honor is never for the honoree, it's for others. It's good perspective. So honor's not bad in itself, but it's not God. And when we turn it into God, we become, in short order, addicted to it. Now, remember Aquinas. You want to be happy? Despise what Jesus despised on the cross and love what he loved. What did he despise on the cross? Wealth. Jesus, naked, nailed to the cross, the end of his life. What does he have in terms of wealth? Nothing. He is detached from wealth. Pleasure, that's the good life. Jesus, the end of his life, is at the limit of physical, psychological, even spiritual suffering. Power? He has none of it. Nailed to the cross, he can't even move. Honor? They laugh at him. They spit at him as he dies nailed to an instrument of torture near the gate of the city of Jerusalem. Despise what he despised on the cross. In other words, be detached from it. Wealth, pleasure, power, and honor. And love what he loved. What did he love? Doing the will of his Father. And it was the very detachment from those four things that allowed him so fully to do the will of his Father. Today, today, he says to Dismas, you'll be with me in paradise. Here, friends, again, it's the high paradox of our faith. But Thomas Aquinas said it. Look at Christ crucified. Hold him right now in your mind's eye. And realize, though it, it runs counter to all of our expectations, there's a picture of someone in paradise. There's a picture of beatitude. Lord Jesus, on the night before you suffered, you said to your apostles, this is how all will know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another, you brought good tidings to the poor. Let us be your messengers to the poor. You healed the sick. Let us bring them your help and consolation. Lovingly you, call the children to you. May our example lead them to goodness and truth. You love the sinner even while hating the sin. Keep us from the harsh judgments of others. You have taken upon yourself our burdens. Give us the grace to bear the burdens of one another. Lord God, keep us in your love 
so that on the day of judgment we may come to you in joy. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Won't you please join in singing our holy Jesus. Standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary of Magdala. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple there whom he loved, he said to his mother, Woman, behold. 